History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'm Jackson, your host, and today we are speaking to Marsha Gordon all about her brand new book with University of California Press, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. Now, this episode with Marsha is amazing. She really brings the life of Ursula to life, really, for us. And we learn so much about this amazing woman. Now, before we jump in to the episode, I just once again want to ask that if you enjoy the content that we create here at History with Jackson, please consider supporting us through History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or through the Buy Me a Coffee profile in the description below. Supporting us here at History Jackson will allow us to create awesome content like this episode that you're about to listen to or mini-series like the ones that we just released at Gloucester History Festival. But now, without further ado, I'll leave you with Marsha. So hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. And today we welcome on author, historian and film studies professor Marsha Gordon. And we talk about her brand new and amazing book that I've just finished reading called Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. So how are you doing, Marsha? I am doing well, Jackson. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first British podcast since the book came out. Oh, wow. Well, I'm very, I'm very, very <laughs> excited to be the first British podcast for you to come on. So I want to say I really, really enjoyed reading your book. And, you know, you've introduced me to an area of history and someone that I'd never heard of. So thank you. You are not alone. I mean, the whole reason I wrote this book is that no one um, had heard of this woman. She had been so long forgotten, myself included, that when I encountered her, you know, at first I just glossed over her because who is she? She must not be important. I've never heard of her. And then, of course, as with so many things, the the deeper you dig, the more you realize like, oh, yeah, this is a, an accident of history and, um, and forgetting, not uh, a sign of importance or lack of importance. So was that what inspired you to write the book then, just coming across her and... Yeah, I was actually, I was at the University of South Carolina Archives. And um, oddly enough, they have this collection of F. Scott Fitzgerald screenplays that were never produced, uh, which he was commissioned to write by MGM um, in Hollywood. And so I was reading one of the screenplays called Infidelity, it had a great title. And I was like, this is so interesting that these materials are here. And I was like, who wrote that? You know, he was hired to adapt the story. Whose story was it? And I see a note based on a story by Ursula Parrott. And I thought, okay, well, I wrote down who is Ursula Parrott, you know, a research question. And so I started poking around a little bit and ended up buying a copy on eBay of her out of print, then out of print novel, Ex-Wife. It's recently been bought brought back into print by McNally Editions. So that's that's one wonderful thing about coming to Ursula Parrott now is that if you are interested in her, you can actually read her 1929 bestseller, which is an amazing book, which um, before you had to do only by buying a used copy like me. And I read the book and I thought, wow, this is like a, a showstopper 1929 book. This is as good as anything I've read from the decade what's her story? And I started poking around and she was this amazing woman, prolific, famous in Hollywood, spokeswoman about modernity and particularly about women's place in the modern world, lived in New York, spent time in, you know, she was just everywhere for, you know, 10 to 15 years. And then she disappeared, um, like almost 
literally. And, you know, she was basically forgotten. And so when I kind of got to the point of realizing how amazing her story was and how well-regarded she was at the time, how prominent she was, and that nobody I asked had heard of her. Like I asked everyone I knew for like a year, have you heard of Ursula Parrott? Have you heard of Ursula Parrott? No. Who is she? And I realized at a certain point, okay, she had an important story that needed to be told. And if I didn't do it, who was going to do it? Because if it's taken almost a hundred years for someone to like find her story, what are the odds someone else will? So I did feel a little bit of a, a sense of um, not obligation in a negative way, but a responsibility to uh, trying to help bring her back into the public eye. I think that's a really nice story of how you you brought Ursula back uh, to to the public public realm, and I, I like that journey and experience there of being a historian. You know, asking everyone, "Have you heard of this person?" And of course, no one has. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, when the people who teach you know, 1920s American literature say, no, you realize like you've really put your finger on a, a problem, right? Which, you know, by the way, this is like one story. How many other forgotten stories are there, you know, of you know, prolific authors, of important cultural figures, whether, you know, there's so many reasons for people to disappear from history and there's no simple reason for that, as you know, ever. But um, it does make you also just aware of the fact that we are always engaging with incomplete histories. And so every time there is a new book, a new discovery, a new article, it, it gives us the opportunity to rethink this moment in history. And, and I, I, like, I like that about history. It allows us to do that. And I think that's really important. Now, we've been discussing what inspired you to talk about Ursula Parrott. Yeah. Now, I want to actually discuss the person. So who who was Ursula Parrott? And I want to kind of delve into her, uh, her early life as well. So what was that like? So Ursula Parrott was born in 1899 in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, that was a very fortuitous place to be born as a woman because, as it turns out, it was one of the really cutting-edge places in the United States for thinking about... Uh, women and education um, and having access to education. So she was raised by um, a family doctor, Catholic family, Irish Catholic family doctor um, in Dorchester neighborhood, a suburb of Boston. She went to Boston Latin Girls School. This is significant because this was the all-female offshoot of the prestigious Boston Latin School, which was only for male students. And um, one of the conditions of sending your daughter to the school was that if she wanted to go to college after she graduated, you had to commit as a parent to sending her to college. So think about how radical this is in you know the 19-teens to make that commitment um, to college. And of course... Lucky for Parrot, again, at the time she was Catherine Ursula Towell, I should add. She went by Parrot, was, which was her first married name um, throughout her life. But um, she went to Radcliffe, which was the all-women's offshoot of Harvard, right? So again, she wasn't part of the first generation of women admitted to Radcliffe, but she was in a relatively early period of, of the school's history. So she had access to as good an education as any woman could get in the country um, in the 19-teens. And so, um, so she goes to, uh, to college. She graduates with an undergraduate degree in 1920. She was an English major. And then um, she meets and elopes to New York with a man named Lindsay Mark Parrott, who was a cub reporter at the time, working his way up in journalism. And they moved to Greenwich Village, which is like the hotbed of all of this energy and excitement and um, debauchery and adventuring and art. 
and culture, and uh, they have a child. And then they begin this kind of uh, tumultuous period where they get separated and they eventually get divorced later on in the 1920s. And Parrot basically finds herself raising her child on her own with some help from her father and her sister who actually never married, um, boarding schools, etc. And um, she had to figure out how to support them. And so she got a job writing advertising copy um, at a department store, which was a as good a career as you could expect as a woman with a college degree at the time, right? She wasn't like behind a counter selling something, um, but she was, you know, doing intellectual work, but she didn't really love the idea of the intellectual work being like selling hosiery and furs. So, um, but she realized she was a good writer and she uh, ended up writing a, a tell-all semi-fictional story about her, a version of her life to date. And it was called Ex-Wife and it came out in 1929 and it absolutely changed her life. And so her early, her early years of, um, you know, being raised in a relatively conservative environment, but then having this education and then ending up in like the hotbed of intellectual curiosity and adventure that certainly informed the rest of her life. It was really interesting watching her develop as a person and go through that period uh, and particularly trying to balance the difficulties of being a single parent uh, and trying to support her her son. So I want to carry on with that, that first novel, really, The Uh, Ex-Wife. You know, how does that take her what direction does that take her career in yeah so you so this is um uh, yeah so many things happen because of ex-wife so first off it's published anonymously at first and that anonymous publication was a marketing gimmick a very clever one on behalf of the publisher because what it suggested in terms of when they were advertising the book was that like oh this is so scandalous that we can't tell you who wrote it right it makes it extra titillating but of course her name was attached to it you know before the book actually even came out it had sold out all a number of advanced printings before you know it even actually hit the shelves so um, her name was attached to it and she you know you you often hear people say oh they became famous overnight well Ursula Parrott became famous overnight um And that overnight happened to be the late summer of 1929, which is an extraordinary time to have come into a vast windfall of money because she literally got her first paycheck from the book in October of 1929. So the month that America descends into the Great Depression, the stock market crash, she's getting her first big check. Hollywood comes calling. She gets an offer to turn this into a movie, which it's turned into The Divorcee in 1930 with Norma Shearer, which gives Norma Shearer her only Academy Award. So she goes from like single divorcee, really struggling with like, wow, what, like, what am I? And that's part of what the novel is about is her kind of realization that she was not just, she was not alone in being a divorcee, navigating life as a single mother or a single woman, having to work, having to figure out, you know, how how she was going to navigate the rest of her young life. But what she realized is that there were so many divorcees all around her. Like this was a condition of the modern age that people weren't acknowledging or talking about. And it's part of what that novel really got credited for. So like the New York Times Review, for example, which the male reviewer did not love the book. He was very like uh, dismissive of the fact that his wife and her girlfriend started like 
flipping through the pages as soon as he put the book down. He makes a comment about that in the review. But he does say like that Parrot identified this category of woman that had not yet been seen by the culture, the ex-wife. And so in naming this category, it was an acknowledgement that that America had shifted from a, a kind of Victorian conservative culture in which marriages you know, were to last no matter what, no matter how awful they were to last, to hmm, maybe these are temporary arrangements that um, should be broken without too much uh, you know, devastation and drama, and you move on to the next thing. And that is a radical shift of point of view. And of course, you know, you have to keep in mind, you know, she's in New York City, right? She's not in the Midwest. She's not in the South. I mean, she is in a much more permissive culture. But even within that, to get divorced in the 1920s, the only reason, the only grounds for divorce in New York was adultery. So you had to fake an, an adulterous affair, even if you just decided you didn't want to be married to each other because you didn't get along. Um, you would have to, you know, lie to the court in order to get a divorce. And this is why the birth of Reno in Nevada become so popular in the 1920s is they had much more permissive divorce laws. So if you had money, you would just send, um, you know, your soon-to-be ex-wife to Reno for, you know, a few weeks, and then they could get the divorce uncontested. So she really puts her finger on the pulse of the age. And, you know, the thing about this novel, too, is that, it's, I think, one of the great novels of New York City. Um, so anyone who loves a jazz age New York City novel will love this novel. But it is so particular to women's experiences. And it's so, um, it covers really difficult territory. I mean, there's a rape in the novel. There's an abortion in the novel. I mean, she was not just dealing with frivolous, like, we're going to a speakeasy and, you know, then I put on my chiffon dress. There's that. But there's also all of this other, I would say, uh, pretty radical engagement with what it meant to be uh, a kind of an untached woman trying to navigate life in the 1920s and trying to be modern, which you know, every good young woman was trying to do, right? Like you don't want to be associated with like, you know, skirts down to your, you know, that cover your ankles and prudish behavior and, you know, you know, playing the naive, unworldly role. Like you want to be part of your age and part of your time. But, but for Parrot, this had consequences. And that's partly what the novel was about. And it's partly why I think she became this kind of spokeswoman for um, a time of great, change because she had experienced that change and she was brave enough really to talk about it and it's you know i think it's incredibly interesting how those all those different cultural takes which are, are pushing the boundary of american society at that point uh are like you said semi semi fictitious they're based on her life so I, re yeah. I really want to kind of jump into that a little bit of you know her life has informed this book what characters were in uh, Parrot's mind as she was writing yeah. uh, through here? Because she's just divorced Lindsay. You yeah. know, she's got a whole other life here in New York. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, one, absolutely, Lindsay, uh, their marriage and divorce is uh, certainly, you know, it's it, it's not a nonfiction, but it's uh, a variation on what really happened between them and on their early life together. But there's also a figure in the book, Noel, who's based on Hugh O'Connor, who was um, Parrot's lover after she 
um, got divorced or actually while she was separated and before she got divorced from Lindsay. And he was also a reporter. Um, there's a heavy journalistic uh, theme to Parrot's life, including the fact that she wanted to be a journalist and was basically blackballed from working at any New York um, newspaper by her uh, soon-to-be ex-husband, Lindsay, who didn't want her you know, around the newsroom or have to run into her and co- while covering stories so that he kind of shut that door down. But Hugh O'Connor, who was married at the time, although allegedly separated and on the verge of going through a divorce, which took a long time to happen, um, he was uh, the Noel figure in the novel. And this is like this great love. um, This uh, They had uh, in Parrot's personal letters to him, which survive, they had a very interesting relationship because they really spent a lot of time actually discussing the differences between men and women in this time period, a lot of the realizations were kind of painful for parrots. So for example, uh, they corresponded about things like, why is it that men want variety and women want constancy? And they, you know, she would propose these, posit these ideas about, well, you know, that women kind of know that they're, uh, they're, their time of their bloom, the youthful bloom is going to fade. And so they want someone who's going to stand by them, even as they get older, what where men have this longer shelf life, and they keep getting drawn to younger women. I mean, it's almost like sex in the city conversations. uh, Right? I mean, these are, these are not like, oh, that's such a quaint, outmoded idea. It's like, oh, these are still things that people talk about, people write about, people make TV shows about, people make movies about. Um, But she was having these kind of debates and conversations. They were almost like Socratic dialogues. Um, and so I, I loved reading their correspondence because it gave me such insight into how she was trying to think about what was really undergirding a lot of the nature of male and female relations in this time period as women were becoming more independent, at least economically, um, right? So if you could, you know, as a woman, um, you know, uh, let's just for the sake of convenience, say in the 19th century, if you got divorced, it's not like you could go out and have a career and earn enough money to be fully self-sufficient, right? You were really reliant on men to pay your way in the world. And so one of the things that Parrot observed from her own life and her own experience was that, okay, she could make a living, she could support herself, but what were the downstream consequences for women who wanted to have careers and husbands and families. And to do all this well, what she saw was like a trap of women who were like running themselves into the ground, trying to be everything and do everything, trying to have it all right in a, in a later 1960s phrasing. And um, so, but she was talking about these things in the 1920s, like really noticing that there were these uncomfortable and maybe unwanted consequences for um, some of the things that seemed progressive and and maybe even ideal in terms of thinking about equality between men and women, but were actually pretty thorny. And so, yes, yeah, so Hugh O'Connor is, is kind of her object lesson in this area. They had a very difficult uh, relationship and he really, you know, devastated her. It's quite sad, really, to see the effect of that relationship on her throughout yeah. your book and how it impacts her life. And, you know, the other thing, Jackson, is that she, it's like Ex-Wife is the first novel. I mean, she wrote 20 books and over 100 stories. And I would say that 75% of them 
are really grounded in her own experiences. I mean, it was really interesting as I researched the book and got to know her voice through her correspondence and by reading about her, reading interviews with her. Um, you know, I read all the books and I read all the stories and it really became clear to me when she was writing from her own experience. And she wrote about, you know, uh, all of her relationships, um, including the relationship she had with her son, which I think is a really important and unusual aspect of her writing and her public personality, because keep in mind, she was um, embracing the role of being an unmarried mother, again, in the 1920s and in the 1930s. She did not feel like she needed to go find a father for her son. She was financially independent after fall of 1929. Um, She did have multiple other marriages and divorces, but none of those men did she ever think of as father replacements. Um, she was perfectly comfortable with the idea that as a, a, a modern woman with very strong ideas about progressive education and being worldly and traveled and being independent, that she could raise her son on her own. And she would do interviews with, say, Screenland or Photoplay magazine in Hollywood or with the New York Times. And she would talk very freely about the way she was raising her son. And You know, I've dug in this period. There's not that many women I've come across who were not only willing to take that role and accept that idea of being basically a single mother, although she wouldn't have used that term, but then also to talk about it. It wasn't a thing of shame. It wasn't a failure. It was just another consequence of the modern age. If marriage and divorce were so kind of it's not that they were easy to enact and undo. They were, you know, uh, they were still complicated rituals. But if that was to be the nature of modern relationships, that they were not going to be permanent and everlasting, then there were going to be things like women raising their children on their own. And that was something that she wrote about in her stories as well. And most of these stories are um, are pretty interesting because they really look at how hard it is to be the child of a, of a, um, a mother or a father who is not as present in your life um, as if they were part of a you know a nuclear traditional family. I I really like it how she's able to challenge those those narratives through her writing and her own personal experiences. I think it makes those writings more more personable and, and like you said, why, that's why people like them. They are more relatable. I want to touch on her writing actually because obviously she doesn't exist solely in the prism of the nineteen twenties. Right. You know, how how does her writing kind of evolve and and change as as times and attitudes in society change? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, keep in mind that Parrot lived through two wars, right? World War One and World War II. She wrote about um, both of those eras, especially the the during uh, war and post-war era. And she really revises the way she thinks in particular about women's lives um, after World War II, where she starts um, uh, really coming out guns blazing about men who expected women who had been independent and working during the war to become homemakers again, sit at home while they go out, you know, to do their jobs during the day and then go drink, you know, beers with their war buddies and swap stories at the end of the day. I mean, so she really kind of sees a a parallelism, but she, she sees the post-World War II era as much more conservative and limiting, which I think as would people like Betty Friedan, this is the same kind of realization that she had when she started doing her research on magazine stories, um, even though she never mentions Ursula Parrott as part of the generation that came before her. But one of the things that happens in Parrott's stories between the 1920s and the 1940s is they go from being much more about 
relationships that are like explosive and fall apart and men who um, kind of can't handle women's professional success and, um, and walk away from them or won't marry them or force them to have affairs because they have the sense of male pride about their economic inferiority to stories about couples who are really trying to work through their problems. And I, and I do think that that was partly Parrot trying to like project what she wanted from her own life. Um, so her stories become a bit more conservative, a bit more um, kind of open to, uh, to uh, settling down, maybe settling for less. So for example, there's a wonderful story she wrote called There's Always Tomorrow, which was twice made into films. Um, the best known version is Douglas Sirk's version with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. It's a wonderful film if um, you get an opportunity to see it. And it that's about a, um, a career woman, very successful uh, fashion designer who has never had time to marry and have a family because she has chosen to be successful. And her old flame, who is a, um, a, a toy designer who um, has been married for I don't know, 20 years, has three kids, and he's pretty miserable. His kids take him for granted. His wife doesn't have time for him. She only dotes on the children. And she, the, the career woman, comes back, knocks on his door, and it's like the perfect scenario for an affair. He's lonely. He's depressed. They spend all this time together. He starts lying about going to the boys club, the men's club, and just like goes and spends time at her apartment um, that she's staying in town, but they don't have an affair. Um, Parrot denies them that. And instead the career woman says, you know, like I, I, I'm leaving you with your life. You have a beautiful life and um, goes away um, to live, I guess, the rest of her uh, successful, very lonely life. And that's such a mature story, but it's also perfect for like a post um, Hollywood production code Hollywood where movies had to be moral, right? That all the sin of the, of the pre-code era before 1934, that just wasn't flying anymore. So she, I think was, was maturing in terms of her moral compass and the way she was imagining her characters, but she was also very sensitive to what was marketable, right? She was always thinking about the marketplace. I, I, I found that that change in her writing really quite fascinating. But you've mentioned something there that I really quite I really want to dig into because I think it's sure. a it's an important aspect actually. Where in her writing she's she's often talking about how men are trying to deal with the success of women. Yeah. But I want to I want to kind of look at Ursula's own life. How does Ursula deal with her own success? Oh, I would say not very well. <laughs> um, so the thing about her is she burned bright. I mean, this is a woman who was adventurous. She was she had a wild streak from the time she was young. You know, I mentioned that she went to Radcliffe, but like she was not a great student. I think she was so smart that she could get away with not being a good student. You know, we've all known those people, right? Who are like, they can like, you know, do their homework five minutes before classes do and at least get a passing grade, even though they haven't been in class all semester. Well, that was her. And I think she um, partly was responding to the same thing that other writers of her generation responded to, which was, you know, the Great War, the war to end all wars um, was supposed to I mean, she saw so many friends die, so many um, lives lost. Uh, that there, 
And that really combined with the Spanish flu epidemic that, you know, was coincident with uh, World War One, really made her feel like there was a fragility to life. And so I think a lot of people of her generation, women and men, um, were kind of living big beyond, you know, maybe even reasonable behavior because they thought their lives could be over at any moment. And so imagine that spirit and then you basically get all the money in the world that you could ever want. And so the result of that was that Parrot loved uh, travel, nice cars, furs, jewelry. Um, She liked to live big and she apparently was also very generous. So she bought, for example, a house in the countryside in Connecticut where she, um, her sister and her son really spent most of their time and Parrot would keep apartments in New York City and train out in the weekend or have them come into the city. Um, You know, she put a swimming pool in for her son. She bought him a horse. Uh, She uh, apparently threw big parties and treated everyone to everything. So she was a spender and um, she had an agent named George By who was a um, very, very well-known agent at the time, agent to Charles Lindbergh and Eleanor Roosevelt and all these other people. And he was also a dear friend and really her protector. And he really tried to get her to save money, pay off her debts, pay off her mortgages. At one point, she signed over responsibility to him. Like he had to co-sign every check she wrote. That lasted for like two weeks. She couldn't deal with it. But, um, but he was really trying to get her to settle down and be practical she was not a practical woman. And so she just couldn't quite ever figure out a way to like settle down. She, she wrote characters who could figure out how to do it. And again, I think that was her envisioning a a dream for what she could have of her own life. But instead she was you know, having these very passionate affairs. She had three more marriages after Lindsay and as many divorces. There's a number of very, very public scandals, including um, an affair she had with a much younger soldier during um, World War II that he, he happened to have been arrested for selling marijuana in New York City. And he was under federal charges at the time because of a recently passed law. And she smuggled him out of a minimum security military stockade in Florida. And they were on the lam and it was in headlines and she was tried in the sensational case. And so things like that, you know, interrupted her writing life, right? Like there's no way you can be calm and work on your manuscripts when you're, you know, having these big, crazy adventures. And so even though time and time again, she would have something disrupt the kind of peace and calm of her life. And then she would say like, look, I'm going back to work on my new book. That She did that for 15 years before life really started catching up with her. Um, She started, she struggled with alcoholism, again, as did many writers of her generation. You think about all the Algonquin stories and everyone, you know, just really abusing alcohol, maybe as a way to try to deal with their unhappiness or kind of self-medicate their depression and anxiety. Um, She absolutely did that and tried to stop drinking at multiple points in her life um, and never could do it. Um, so she, uh, she really, she just kept coming back until she couldn't, you know, and by the you know late 1940s, early 1950s, 
she um, she's really at the end uh, of her rope um, and just can't put the pieces back together again. Um, she keeps trying, um, but yeah, but by the time, by the end of her life, um, I mean, she died completely without notice, but also she was, you know, flat out broke from what I can tell and had been really living a hard, uh, lonely life those past, uh, the last few years of her life, about which, by the way, I know so little. One of the things, you know, about writing someone's life and writing history is you can only write what you know. And, um, because she died um, when nobody was paying attention to her and no one was tending to her literary legacy or anything about her legacy, you know, there was not a single obituary published. There was, you know, no, no one's looking after her papers or, you know, kind of reflecting on her contributions. So she just really just disappears. And you know, the only traces of her, I would say in the last eight years of her life, are when she's in the newspaper and that's for some, you know, something that goes wrong, running out on a hotel bill or um, something like that. So otherwise she's just kind of a ghost. And so there's a few letters that she wrote to her agency, um, her former literary agency, when she's trying to, um, to get out of debt. And one of her ex-husbands um, actually kind of helps her try to get back on her feet, um, which I found rather touching that he came back into her life and she was tremendously grateful for his care at a time when she really felt like she was on her own. But I think she was hiding from even her sister and from her son because she was, you know, so upset that she had fallen to such a low point and was determined always to come back. I mean, she had a great um, optimistic spirit. She was very resilient. Um, but I think everybody has a breaking point and she and she did hit that um, come the 1950s. It's it's really quite quite sad to see that that career and that genius kind of fall apart through her inability to keep up with what she needed to do to, yeah. to sustain that lifestyle. She often worked against her own best interests and I think really struggled. I mean, she is someone that I think ironically could have used a very stable relationship, whether it was a marriage or, you know, George by her agent tried to be that person for her. You know, he was kind of like a father figure to her and tried to get her just to, you know, buckle down. But, you know, even at one point, you know, he walks away because he can't deal with the antics and the late, the missed deadlines and things like that anymore. You know, re reading that about George Bai, it was, there was a, there was tinges of, of sadness in that where he, he really, you could tell from the way you wrote it that he really didn't want to do it, but he was kind of forced into that position. Yeah, I think their relationship, they, they had such a sweet relationship and they had such a great rapport. The letters between them, were such a gift that, I mean, that his literary agency basically saved all of their correspondences at the Columbia University archives. And so I, I really got a sense of her sense of humor. Even when she was down on her luck, she was so witty about like her failures. And um, uh, yeah, her personality really shines through because they are such intimate friends. And they, he really tries to give her advice about what she's the decisions she's making and, and when she doesn't follow the advice, at least she's funny about it, you know? So, um, so yeah, so that was a very sweet relationship and, and I'm sure that was a hard decision for him to walk away. But I also think at the point that he did, that she really was struggling to uh, 
to really function at that point. I mean, she was really falling apart in all of these ways and got very desperate. And, um, you know, that must have been hard for him to watch. And I, and I know that he knew that she was also struggling with some physical problems, um, partly as a re- result of multiple abortions that she had um, during her life, which, of course, were illegal procedures and all manner of experimental and un, um, un, you know, uncareful and unmedically sound. And so she paid the consequences for that. And yeah, and all of that took its toll. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I think she's got a remarkable life. And you know, I want to say thank you for bringing her back into the public sphere, because I think more people should know about Ursula. I think she's a very interesting character. Yeah, yeah. And I hope, I mean, one of the things I've been trying to do, I mean, so far only in the US, but there were 10 films made of her work, which is a, a really significant body of films from The Divorcee in 1930 to There's Always Tomorrow in 1956. Um some of these are the great pre-code films. Jimmy Stewart's first starring role is in an Ursula Parrott film. Um, one of Humphrey Bogart's first roles is in an Ursula Parrott film. So she's really, like, I hope people will program her films. Anyone out there who needs an introduction, I can fly and come and do that. I mean, that's what I'm doing in the U.S. right now is I'm traveling around introducing um, a bunch of her films, um, you know, and piggybacking that with book talks because it's really incredible to see the way her interest in this idea, especially of like the modern woman gets translated into movies. It's like, it's the hot thing in the 1930s. Right. And it's perfect for actresses like Norma Shearer and Barbara Stanwyck, um, Margaret Sullivan. Uh, Next time we love this film with Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart is all about a couple where both of the couple want careers both acknowledge that the other has a right to have a career they have a child and because his career takes him abroad and hers keeps her at home they live their entire lives apart from each other seeing each other only on occasion and they have these great careers but their marriage is nothing it's like uh, you know a once a year weekend relationship and it's a text that's really thinking about what the priorities are in people's lives in an age where the idea of a career, you know, works for both the man and the woman. This is like a new concept, right? That there could be a dual equally important careers, male and female, and a child involved. And how do you balance and navigate that? And to me, that's that film and that, um, that book, it's based on actually a series of, uh, of uh, a serialized story that then became a novel and then became a film. It's so moving. And Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, it's one of the most mature, interesting relationships I've ever seen in a Hollywood film because it's not about fighting and blame. And like, it's about two young people trying to figure out how to navigate a world that there's like no rules for. And so, yeah, I think that people, if they can, um, you know, read Ex-Wife since it's now available and see some of her films, I think they will be really interested in seeing how she's raising these issues uh, with her characters and her stories that are still, you know, we're still working through these things, you know, in 2023. And you've just stolen the words out of my mouth really there. I was going to say how pertinent they are uh, to today. But you've given me a really nice segue there about films and movies. Uh, and I have a final fun question for you, as I do for everyone here on the History Jackson podcast. So you are a professor of film studies at NC State, but I wanted to ask you, what is your guilty pleasure film? 
<laughs> oh, first off, there are no guilty pleasures. I don't believe in that. Um, but I, I would answer um, with instead of a film, I would answer with almost a genre, which is I love 1970s disaster movies. So like the airport films and Earthquake and Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure. I mean, these films are so much fun. I mean, they're just so much fun. Like, you know, imagine being on a giant cruise ship and it's New Year's Eve and, you know, there's this terrible accident and everyone, you know, who lives is trapped and how will they get off the ship and who's going to die first? I mean, they're, they're all-star cast films. So this these are the years of like, how are we going to get people to come to the movies? Well, we're going to make a big adventure film and every star who's available is going to be in the film. So if I just want to have a good time and like laugh and, um, you know, just at like revel in the excesses of a movie, like over the top performances for the most part. Um, I always think about Shelley Winters giving the most delightfully unsubtle performance ever in Poseidon Adventure. Um, I go for 1970s disaster movies. I, I think that's a brilliant answer. Uh, I don't. I don't think movies. I don't think movie stay can compete with that kind of that kind of style at all. <laughs> no, they try. You know, it's funny. Some of the superhero films where they have like you know the multiverse uh, character overload. It's like they're trying to do a similar thing, actually. Right when you have you know Scarlett Johansson and you know all the performers in one place at the same time trying to do the same thing. It's really it's brokering in the same territory, but they're just not as fun. They're just not as fun. And I mean, maybe, maybe in 20 or 30 or 40 years, we can look back on those and have a, a different kind of appreciation for them. But there's just something that's so um, unserious to me about the 70s disaster films. And the superhero films strike me as like almost always a little too serious for, you know, for that kind of uh, pleasure. Well, that, that's a great answer. I love that. So thank you. Now, we are, we are here. We have been here to talk about your brand new book, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. I do have my copy here. I know we're audio only, but I love, nice. I love it. I want to, you know, you've, you've got to tell our listeners, you know, where can they grab a copy of your book uh, and where can they interact you interact with you and find you online? Yeah, great. Thank you for asking. So first off, you can, of course, buy it from, you know, Amazon, the the big the big online retailer of all time. Um, uh, you can also, of course, order it from your local independent bookstore if you prefer. Um, there's actually a bookstore in Raleigh called So-and-So Books that um, that has a bunch of autograph copies. And I'm always happy to sign more. Uh, I love supporting my local bookstore and uh, they will ship anywhere um, that you could possibly want it sent. Um, I have a website, uh, marciagordon.org and all of my um, book events uh, that are scheduled through uh, the end of the year are up at the website. I have a newsletter um, that's going out two to three times a month. That's right now pretty Ursula focused, but it'll shift as time goes by. And I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm very easy to find. My email address is findable at North Carolina State University. And I actually, you know, I love hearing from people after they read the book. It's one of the great pleasures. I mean, you spend these years like researching and writing a book all on your lonesome and then you put it in the world. And sometimes you're like, okay, there's a review, there's a podcast, but like, 
are people reading it? What do they think? And then you get emails from strangers who are like, I just read your book. I'm so interested in this. And then I read ex-wife and, and that's like a great joy. So I love hearing from um, readers. And it truly is a amazing book. And I do recommend for our listeners to go away and, and buy a copy and read it because it really does, it really does illuminate the life of someone who we've forgotten about. So Thank you very much for, for writing this book. And thank you to University of California Press for sending me one as well. So, Yeah, thank you so much, Jackson. It was lovely to talk to you. Oh, it was lovely having you on. Thank you very much. Now, I hope you enjoyed that awesome conversation with Marsha. And I hope you enjoyed learning about Ursula Parrott, who I found to be such a fascinating character. And that life of hers to be so full of so many interesting events and people. But if you did enjoy this episode, please head to those usual places to support History of Jackson to continue to do what we do. Now, next episode will be again on a Sunday and I hope you enjoy listening to that one because it is a super one that we've got lined up. I'll see you all next episode.